Welcome to the Gentle Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Donegan. I'm a midwife, mom, and founder of Gentle Birth. Join me each week to hear inspiring, uplifting birth stories, learn helpful tips, and get advice from parents and professionals supporting you on your journey to parenthood. Your positive birth begins here. In this week's podcast, we'll meet Michelle Cree, author of The Compassionate Mind Approach to Postnatal Depression, using compassion-focused therapy to enhance mood, confidence, and bonding. Michelle works as a consultant clinical psychologist for the Derby Perinatal Mental Health Service and has also developed a 12-week Compassionate Mind course for staff in the Derbyshire Healthcare Foundation Trust. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you for inviting me. I came across your book there a couple of weeks ago. I'm a midwife, as you know, and I'm always, I guess, looking for what other tools can we use to support mothers through pregnancy and especially in that postpartum period where it's just such an intense time. So as someone who has you know, had a, a meditation practice for a long time, and I found that really helpful in my own work and as a parent, when I came across your book, the focus on compassion, I thought is something that the whole world needs to be looking at right now. I think you'll agree can uh, maybe start <laughs> practicing a little bit more compassion in our lives and especially for mothers idea of self-compassion. Because when I talk to people about compassion, it's it's hard to get people to understand that you can actually train your brain to yeah. be more self-compassionate. And it's not what everyone thinks it is. For me personally, it has taken my, my meditation practice just to a whole new level. Whereas meditation and mindfulness is more cerebral it's more about what's going on in the mind and when we practice compassion and compassion training it is I think it's it just it's so far beyond mindfulness and it's much more about what I consider to be heart-focused therapy I had an opportunity to take a, a training with the compassion center in Stanford there last year and it just really just opened my eyes to so many new tools that we can use with, with new yes. moms and with the, the partners as well. So please tell me, what drove you to write this book? Um, well, it was I was introduced to, to the approach um, when I went to Paul Gilbert's first three-day workshop that he did, uh, which must be about 15 years ago. I work in the same location as Paul, so I've known him for a long time. I've been following with interest uh, his his work on compassion and his work with severe depression. And my interest is in evolution, biology, attachment and psychology. So when I heard him, it, it brought everything together. It, it was a real epiphany. I remember just sitting there on the edge of my seat for three days, which is very rare at, at things like that. And I've been working in the field of perinatal since 2001. And as I listened to him, I just thought it fitted so perfectly, this area, because it was all about developing the soothing system, which is um, connected to the oxytocin system. Um, and I sat there thinking, my goodness me, if we can, if we can bring this to, to new mothers, can we also work with their relationship with their baby at the same time, even without their babies being present because we're stimulating this system? So it just led me to, to think more and more about how we can bring this, his work together into the, the perinatal work. And the book really came because the more I started to understand about the brain and evolution and so on, the, the more I would hear women expressing their real self-criticism 
of themselves at this time which feels so precious and so important but they will be highly critical of things that I knew were not their fault at all and I really wanted to share that with them I just I wanted to download this knowledge into into the minds of all new mums really that it's such a complex process and the things that you believe are to do uh, with you and are your fault are not your fault at all so that, that was what drove me to write this book. Can I? And that's why it's such a big book as well. I had the same reaction when I was reading your book of sitting at the edge of my seat saying, yes, this is somebody else gets it. And someone else is focused on neuroplasticity of the brain. And, and how can we look at you know, the legacy brain, which 100,000 years ago was, was a fantastic tool to, if for survival. But nowadays, we don't have to worry about the bear chasing us. We, we need to be more worried about what our inner self-talk is, is telling us absolutely absolutely and and that yeah that's the real tragedy is is just seeing women at this vulnerable and crucial time feeling like they're doing it wrong that's it exactly and i and i think that idea of our constant striving for perfection and to be the the perfect mother it's it's just something that that we really need to kind of deconstruct for especially as for for all the mothers that are you know listening in today and either struggling themselves or are about to give birth just to you know we need more tools for moms to understand how they can you know use their brain in ways that will support them in in motherhood so why do you think self-compassion is so important when it comes to to being a a new mother well I, i think the the big thing uh, around this is is that we're we're wired up we've evolved over billions of years if you think about in terms of evolution to to reproduce so this really is the critical time i can't think of a more important time in our lives than this moment this is this is what we're we're for what we're cranked up for so we we need to help women to to function at their very best at this time we need to really look after them and it doesn't feel it feels like we've lost that really so there's two aspects one is the the people around us and the environment around us and our attitude to women but also to to help women to, if you can't control what's around you, to at least start with yourself. That for you to be the mother that I'm imagining you're hoping to be, which I don't know what that might be for each person, but I don't know, calm, patient, encouraging, nurturing. We need to be in a, a particular state of mind and body. We need to be in a particular pattern, if you like, uh, where we can best be that. And if we're criticising ourselves, we're actually stimulating a different system. We're stimulating the threat system. Um, and that means we're much more likely to respond to, to our babies and to, to the birth experience from a place of fear, anxiety, anger and so on. So self-compassion is like... Um, I remember on a, on a flight listening to, to the, about the oxygen masks. Yes. And it really struck me when they said, um, if the oxygen mask, if there's dropping pressure, the oxygen mask will pull, fall. And you need to put this on yourself before you put it on your children. And that's what's really crucial with this, is that we need to bring this to ourselves first so that we can shift the pattern within our body to one where we've, we feel calm and soothed and safe. And then we can be with our babies in the, in the way that we'd hope to be. So it's really 
not about being selfish or self-centered or taking your mind away from the baby. It's absolutely crucial that we bring this to us first. Yeah. And then that enables us to be with our baby in a, in a very different way. That was a big aha moment for me personally when I was reading your book about our inner voice and that inner critic. Over the years, and it's still always a work in progress, I've yeah. become more attuned to that negative voice, or my I call it my evil twin, kind of in the background. And I've, uh, you know, I've kind of gently tried to replace that voice with what I would assumed to be a more compassionate sounding voice even so I, I I wrote an article a couple of years ago about how Morgan Freeman made me a better mom based on that very reassuring quiet calm friendly voice one aspect of the book where you you talk about that how that inner voice can can like trigger that threat and that protection system just the same way where if you were walking down the street and somebody stood in front of you and insulted you or attacked you yeah. for me I was like I didn't as much as I've been you know studying neuroscience and as, as part of my midwifery for the last few years this was something that actually clicked for me I thought oh if you, if you were walking down the street and somebody approached you and shouted at you or told you you look you look whatever or or, or just insulted you that when we say those things to ourselves, it's having that exact same impact on our emotional system and our and those and so far from that soothing system. Yes, it's it's quite shocking to realise that, isn't it? It really to, is. Yeah, I'm taking more care now, even more so with the, yes. <laughs> with my inner voice. So. So I, and I love your approach as, you know, looking at evolution, because what I always say, is, you know, the brain evolved for survival not for joy and not for you know happiness so it's if we can the brain's job is to help us survive but how can we do that in a way that makes sense in today's world how would motherhood have looked a couple of hundred thousand years ago if if we were living on the african plains how would that be different to to what women are experiencing today well well i guess we can assume that it would be a, a pretty risky place there will be predators, you've got to respond to the, the temperature changes to getting food and so on. Giving birth, I imagine, would be uh, a pretty risky endeavour too. And the chances are we'd be living in very small groups of about 100 people. So we, we tend to assume that we relate in this world of millions of people, but actually we relate nowadays in the same way that we would have done to the people around us who would have been related to us in many, in many respects. So being a mother, being pregnant at that time would be very, very risky and you would be very attractive to, to predators too. Um, so when we watch wildlife programs, if we watch which animals predators go after, it's usually the babies. And there you are, once you've had your baby, you're a, a predator magnet. So we can start to understand how we've been wired to be really vigilant to threat around us and how important it is that we are looked after by the group that we're in. We could be very self-sufficient up to that point, but once we've become pregnant and we're very heavy, it's slow to move, we're, we're giving birth, we have a new baby that we're breastfeeding and carrying, um, we become much more reliant on the group that we're in. And you've, you've alluded to how in this, you know, through evolution, we've become 
much more prone to um, our awareness of how we're held in the minds of other people. So the threats are much more about social threat. And this is what we can imagine being in that group. We really need to be held positively in the minds of other people. Because if something happens to us, if a predator comes through the group, we need to know that we're going to be looked after in this really vulnerable time. So the people around us become even more important at the time of, of pregnancy and postnatally. And it's, so, it's interesting when we, we talk about in pregnancy for, for moms to like find your tribe, find yeah, surround yeah. yourself with, with like-minded family members, friends, and because it's yeah. even more important after the baby arrives. We didn't evolve to, to be isolated as mothers. So no. many women are. Yes, I mean, the, that, that's part of this tragedy is, is seeing how women are, sh- are struggling in houses completely on their own and on their own during the day, nobody there at all, and feeling like they should be able to cope. But actually, we've, we've evolved to be looked after by that group and for our baby to be looked after by that group too. So we're, we're one of the few uh, great apes, if you like, if you like to think of us as great apes, one of the few great apes that shares the care of our babies with others. So the, that idea that it takes a village to raise a child is, is absolutely true. Yeah. So, yeah, so so many women I hear say, well, I, I can't cope, but other women can cope. Well, actually, we, we're not designed to, to cope on our own. Yes. We're not even designed to cope with, with ourselves and our partner. Um, it, ne- it needs to be more than that. We need to be able to share our care. Then we can flourish and function as we're supposed to. And I think that's such an important message for, for anyone listening is that you're not failing. This is really hard, but it's, yeah. we've made it extra hard with this idea that we have to be able to do on our own it's yes. it's just ludicrous that we need the tribe we need that's what we evolved to to have for survival and we've yes. just we've just cut uh, cut moms off and moms are cutting themselves off because they think that's how it should be yes and that is so recent and also culturally that's unusual too so we're really not wired for that at all this is just a, a a moment in time that we've arrived at this very odd place where we're trying to do this entirely on our own. Yeah, and it's and it's not that it, when we look at other cultures where, like, I lived in Singapore for a while, and a lot of the the new mothers there had that lying in month where yeah. the mother-in-law yeah. moved in or the mother moved in, and all you were to do is feed your baby. You were looked yeah. after. You were mothered, especially those first couple of weeks. Uh, and that's so what's needed. And and mothers feel it. They, they crave it. They yeah. really want that. But it's it's not available. And there is the message that you should be up and about and mm-hmm. back to, to how you were before as quickly as possible. So, Michelle, would you tell us a little bit about your theory of depression and that again that it's an evolved protective mechanism yes so this isn't this isn't my theory of depression i can't i can't take credit for that um so paul paul gilbert who developed compassion focused therapy also um this this is where he started off thinking about depression and thinking about it in evolutionary terms um and he wrote a fabulous book about this uh, which which summed this up and he talked there 
about the book was called Depression: The Evolution of Powerlessness. So he talked about a, a theory which we still need to look into. Um, that depressive behaviour can can be seen throughout the animal kingdom in relation to an attack by a powerful other. And he he took that idea and started to look at whether this, uh, or he, not just him, but many other people, to look at whether this was something that we also experienced too. So in the face of an attack, which could be a social attack, then we would respond by our our heads dropping, the energy disappearing from our body, being reduced in motivation, wanting to hide away, pulling away from social contact as a way of protecting ourselves from that initial threat. So it really was about signaling to the, the other animal, if you like, or the human animal, that I'm no longer a threat to you. So it was an immediate way the theory goes, of preserving yourself in that moment. But the problem is, is that if that carries on for too long, then as we know, depression can be highly destructive. So one of the ideas is that that may have worked for humans um, when we were in these small groups, because you were visible. It was clear that you were struggling, that you'd disappeared into the cave, if you like. Uh, but you had people around you who would notice you, who could come and reassure you and reconnect you back again quite easily. But when you're depressed and you believe that nobody else wants to be around you, how do you make those steps to, to reach out when you're on your own in a home? So so this is where we have this, this kind of clash of a, a potentially protective mechanism. And there are lots of other reasons why we get depressed. So sure. not just be that one. But how that clashes with our new way of living, where we can go for a very long time being hidden in our houses, unable to open the door or answer the telephone. You also talk a little bit about anxiety being protective. I think every mother on the planet has experienced some kind of levels of anxiety in that postpartum period. So especially like the 4am. So would you talk to our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so th this is thinking about how how our brains change. So we know our brains go through a phenomenal change when we become pregnant. It's a huge change. Um, and it's so big, it's, li it's likened to the, the scale of changes that we might see after a severe brain injury. So it, it really is something that's very different to, to how we were before. So we might notice that our anxiety, our ability to experience anxiety gets really ramped up. And we can see this from the point of view that actually this makes evolutionary sense, that we're now much more vulnerable. We now have a baby who is vulnerable, so we need to be much more vigilant to, to any potential threats. And that includes threats from other people. So we also know that we, our ability to to tune in to people's facial expressions also yes. gets tuned up. Um, so we really are on the lookout for, are you friend or foe? Are you going to harm me and my baby or not? Or are you safe? Um, so so our, our kind of level for detecting or feeling anxiety drops significantly. So it's much easier for us to feel anxious once we have a baby. And one of the things that we noticed over the years is women would talk about this terror in the middle of the night, you know, three eight, like you say, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., um, of feeling really vulnerable. 
and this vulnerability just this anxiety just lifting when the when the sun came up and it's also thinking about can we understand that from an evolutionary point of view that if you had a crying baby in the the dead of night when it's dark there are an awful lot of predators about when we were living on the African plains we need to keep our baby quiet because otherwise our baby, ourselves, and our group are under threat. Um, so that's that's one of the ways we can think about there may be a reason why we're experiencing this increase in anxiety. This isn't a weakness, a vulnerability, a fault within you, but could this be a way, um, that, something that's been designed to happen within us? And that's really the the kind of the message from the book is is that we might feel it's our own fault, but we just do not know the many, many mechanisms that get switched on um, once we become pregnant and have our baby. Yeah, I think it's a great way of, of looking at anxiety and I think perinatal mood disorders as well to look, is there something behind this that's, yeah. you know, that is a braid mechanism that is designed to protect you and your baby? And I think that bit of understanding, I think, will I think will be really helpful for for so many parents listening in. And one one thing I I joke to to the parents I work with that you know when you have a baby, you know they take the baby out and they put the guilt in. Are there? <laughs> tell me, please. Are there any evolutionary benefits to feeling guilt or feeling shame? That, that's an interesting question because it's it's always hard to know whether there's there's a, a benefit or whether it's a, an unintended consequence of something else that was beneficial. So I'm always hesitant to to say that this might be beneficial. We don't know whether it is or not. But when we when we think about shame and guilt, they're they're often used interchangeably because they can often come together. But shame and guilt are, are quite different. They come from very different systems. So shame comes from the threat system and in evolutionary terms because it's, it's such a, a crippling thing to feel if anybody's experienced shame it's one of the most awful experiences to have and one of the ideas behind it is that it's so um, horrible to feel this that it's a way of making sure that we don't ever make a mistake that can put ourselves or the group at risk. So it's back to our time on the, the African plain, if you like, where making a catastrophic mistake, being cast out of the group, would mean our death. We, we wouldn't survive it. So we have to behave in ways where we keep within the group. So shame is, it is thought perhaps to be a way of kind of making sure that we, we keep ourselves in line. But the difficulty with shame is it's an entire body experience. We feel like our whole selves are contaminated when we're in shame. So people would describe themselves as, I am bad. Not that the thing that I did was bad, but yeah. that I am bad. I am awful. I am unlovable. So it's our whole selves. It really is a, an, an awful experience. And when, when we experience shame, we imagine what what happens within our body that we we want to kind of curl up disappear through the floor um, hide away conceal ourselves because um, we we feel like if people knew what we'd done thought or, or was happening within us that we would get cast out 
they wouldn't want to be with us. So it really is, it comes from a fear of absolute disconnection and the terror of what that would have mean, meant. And I think especially for women who are experiencing quite normal feelings towards their baby, that, yes. you know, like we don't, and yes. I think it's so important for, for women to understand that not everybody has that glorious moment of oh. connection at the birth of their baby. And that sometimes there's going to be days where they don't even like their baby. And the feelings that go along with that are just, you just want the ground to open and swallow you up. Yes, because there, there is that fear that I am the only one that's experiencing this. That must mean that I'm bad in some way. And I can't tell people about that because otherwise they won't want to be with me. And it, that's even more terrifying when you've had a baby because as we were saying we're we're wired to need the help of others even more at this time so we're even more vulnerable to to the experiences of shame so being able to de-shame this by saying giving the message from you in a book however we do this that that that's normal actually 40 to 50 percent of women don't experience a rush of love when they have their baby so you are normal. It's normal to, as you say, to to feel furious or not love your baby or feel numb towards your baby for a long time, for for a, a moment in your day, for that day. Th- these are all really normal things to have experiences and things that flash into our mind that you think, oh my goodness, mm. you know, what if I dropped my baby? What if I chucked my baby? You know, these are the things that we talk about in the groups that we run. Those experiences of I could just throw you against the wall. Not that you want to, but that in that moment you're so mad, you're so frustrated, you're so, you're so desperate that you have this flush into your mind. That these are common experiences that mean that that's what we want to do, but it's there. It's a, it's a symptom of how desperate this is at the moment. And I think the more isolated then the mother is, then the less opportunity she has to even broach this discussion of, God, I thought something really awful today. And when you you talk to other women, they're like, yeah, you know, I've had those thoughts too. And it normalizes it. And and that shame then just just has no energy. That's right. That's right. That shame's just taken away. It's got got no power in that moment because you're, you're connected back up. You're connected to the group. And when we're connected to the group, we feel safe and that soothes us and settles us. So it's just an awful, awful thing, experiencing shame, because it it traps us in it. It's very hard to get out of it. But that's quite different to guilt, which, uh, like you, my expression is slightly different to yours, whereas I I always say that guilt is delivered with the baby. (laughs) But it's the same thing. It's part and parcel. Um, but guilt comes from the the caregiving the caregiving system. So this is the the system which is quite different to the threat system, where we really are wired to to look after, to want to look after, to care, and so on. Um, so this system gets ramped up when we're pregnant and when we have a baby. Um, but the flip side of that is is if we feel we haven't cared for someone or for our baby that we think, oh, crikey, I, I really, I got cross with you then and I really wished I hadn't. The feeling then is much more about what I've done to you. It's my behaviour that I've done to you. And the urge, the motivation there is to, to say sorry, to make amends, it's to reach out. So it's very different from shame where you want to hide away and not let anybody know. 
with guilt, it's that I did something that I really regret and I'm really sorry about that and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I don't do this again. So so it is a kind of an acceptance that it, it's because you, you care so desperately about your baby that you really want to do the best you can. So it's it's kind of being with your guilt, being with your shame too, but understanding that the, that the reason you have guilt is because it's bringing your attention to, to things that you think, oh, mm-hmm. no, that wasn't the person I wanted to be, that wasn't how I wanted to be. And, and allows you to, to shift and change that, but not with this catastrophic experience that shame has of, I can't tell anyone about this. So shame kind of keeps us in a, a state of disconnect, I guess, whereas guilt kind of leads us to motivate us to reconnect. Yeah. So, so it's almost like it's not pleasant. It's horrible to experience guilt, but uh, feeling that, well, it's, it's okay. It makes absolute sense. Um, and if we can go with it and reach forward and move towards repairing this i'm going to need to to make this better change this that that's okay michelle in your book you talk a little bit about the dark side of oxytocin and i know we've lots of uh, birth professionals listening in and there's always a strong focus on oxytocin being this amazing hormone which it is and it does so many incredible things in pregnancy and, and postpartum but there is a little darker side to oxytocin can you talk to us a little bit about that yes it's uh, there's an awful lot of research that's going on looking at oxytocin because it was as you say it was regarded just as this wonderful hormone it was called the the cuddle cuddle hormone or the hormone of love and felt to be so significant that it was um people were talking about well you can actually buy nasal sprays and so on to use in all sorts of different things but now as they're starting to investigate it more they're finding that it's much more complex so although it can create this sense of love and connection and warmth they're they're finding that it only creates that towards your in-group so to the people that you feel you relate to but to your out-group it actually makes you more hostile and less trustworthy so this was a kind of oh crikey this is not how we imagine this would be that that actually you'd feel this expansive love towards everybody including your enemies you actually don't it, it creates more of a separation so, so and, and how how does that work then if you're if you you might consciously have this this feeling but if you if your baby is part of the outgroup yes so this this is something that I've wondered about over the time that I've worked with people is is that sometimes the the baby can be experienced almost as your threat as your enemy can be a whole lot of reasons for that so so things like um, severe hyperemesis going through um, a birth where you really did feel like you were going to lose your life where the baby take does take everything from you so it during pregnancy it will take your very bone marrow to survive so there can be experiences where it it doesn't feel like this baby you and this baby are in it together but it actually feels like this baby is taking something very significant from you you know your very life force so i was intrigued by that um, understanding of how oxytocin in those circumstances may make you feel even more separate to your baby so it's just it's again like all of these things 
it's not taking this as uh, something that's that's shameful, but going, can we be curious about what this might be doing? So other pieces of research about oxytocin have found, have looked at the experience of having an oxytocin nasal spray for people who are low self-critics compared to people who are high self-critics. So this is very fascinating in my work because I, I work with women who are, are often very highly self-critical. And they found that for the low self-critics, if they were given the oxytocin nasal spray, they didn't know whether they had a placebo or not, that they would describe a feeling of warmth, of love, of connectedness, the, the experience that you would imagine you would have with oxytocin. But if you were rated as highly self-critical, then your experience of the oxytocin nasal spray was of making you feel anxious, angry, frustrated, sad. And for me, that that's absolutely mind-blowing because it, it, it makes me wonder, and I would like to study this, I don't know if it's being studied, women through, so our, our production of oxytocin will go up to the end of pregnancy. We will have massive bursts of it during delivery of our baby. When we breastfeed, we experience surges of oxytocin when we're just holding our baby. So what might be the impact if that experience of oxytocin within us that we've not chosen, it's just happening to us, is actually bringing up feelings of anxiety or anger, mm. fear, frustration when we're with our baby. And I haven't even looked at the, the impact, potential impact that synthetic oxytocin, which is one of the most routinely used drugs in, in, in birth these days in kind of the modern world. And then there's, I would say, you know, again, looking kind of back on someone's early, you know, childhood development, have they, what kind of, what kind of upbringing did they have that might have boosted their own oxytocin or reduced it and based yes, on their right. life experiences as well? Yes, and that, that was one of the other pieces of research as well, is that when you're given oxytocin, it tends to pull back your early attachment memories. And that's regardless of whether they're good or they're bad. So there's there's also that that's going on in the mix, is you know, rather than feeling this, this kind of warmth and closeness, are you now having these memories? And some of them are body memories, so they're not memories that we're consciously aware of. We're just suddenly experiencing something that's that might feel odd and scary within our body, which we would then naturally assume is to do with our relationship with our baby, um, when it's nothing to do with our baby at all, our relationship with our baby. It, it really is that we're now re-experiencing um, an emotional memory or a body memory that's been triggered off from the past. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's, and there's, it's, yeah. <laughs> we could yeah. spend a whole day just talking about oxytocin. Oh, we, could. Oh, we could, we really could. Could you give our listeners some tips on, you, you mentioned that that inner critic, just on, on developing a more self-compassionate, as you call a self-compassionate coach or that inner voice, what, what can listeners do starting like today to give themselves a little bit more self-compassion, self-kindness, more nurturing? So what, one of the practices that we do when we're looking at our self-critic is to imagine that self-critic appear in front of us. It's a very powerful thing to do. Um, and it gives you that experience that you talk about, that imagine being 
face with that person and hearing how they speak to you, hearing how they would respond to things that you're struggling with, hearing how they would respond even when things go well for you. Um, you can imagine how you would, your critic might respond to that. So it's becoming aware of how unhelpful the critic is because often there can be resistance to, to giving up the critic. So we might think we would like to develop our compassionate side, but the first step is to understand why we would like to reduce that self-critic. Otherwise, we, we kind of hang on to it because we can have a belief that actually I need that bit um, because it's that bit that gets me off the sofa. It's that bit that makes me look after my child. It's that bit that makes me achieve. I think that's probably a very reasonable fear. I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, as the inner critic, if I just drop my inner critic, you know, will I get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, will will I look after my baby? Will I even care about my baby? Will I care about what people think of me? So, so that and the, that fear fear is very deep. So that's the first bit that we always help people to understand is really how your your critic is working for you, that it isn't actually helping you to do these things. When you imagine your critic in front of you, you actually feel deflated. It takes the energy away from you. You feel low, you feel upset, you feel anxious. So that's the first step really is to to see why we're working on this other part and why we're looking to leave this part behind. So so once we've done that, once we really understand that, then that also then helps us to think about if if there was somebody I really cared about or, or my child was struggling with, say, learning maths or something like that, who would I want to help them? So what, what credentials would I like them to have if I was to, to go and interview some people to, to help my child or a good friend of mine? So would I employ the, my critic to help them? And the chances are we wouldn't, we really would not want that person to, to be trying to help our child. So we know intuitively that doesn't help. So then we can start to think about, so what would be the credentials that I would like that person to have? So thinking about um, uh, a teacher or, or a coach, how would we like them to be with our child or that person that we cared about? So we would perhaps want them to be warm we perhaps want them to be kind and encouraging. We would want them to understand um, when we make mistakes, but to, to really help us to build on the things that we can do, to understand that it is human to do that, but to keep us moving forward and looking at the person that we want to be, to support us and so on. So it's starting to build that sense of this being that we would like to then be with ourselves. So how could I then almost step into embodying that compassionate teacher or compassionate coach and being the, that way towards myself? And the two key aspects of this are thinking about your voice and your face because our threat system has actually got two, two parts to it, to this, which are highly attuned to facial expression and to voice tone. So a very quick way in to helping ourselves feel safer and more soothed is to think about the, the voice tone and the facial expression of that part of you. So being able to talk to yourself with real warmth, with real kindness and imagining how, that, how your face would look towards you. And we're wired to, to respond 
unconsciously to to that that immediately helps us to feel safe and soothed and settled i love that example about your teaching your child math and who would you want that coach to be because everybody wants the kind motivating and warm person to be looking out for our our children so i think that's a great example i think parents will resonate with definitely in the book you mention thought balancing and letter writing can you tell us a little bit about that and how that can be helpful yes so so thinking about if we take thought balancing first so this is this is using techniques that are used in cognitive behavior therapy where you would take a thought or an event that's really knocked you that's meant that you've really struggled then bring in a more balanced way of thinking about it. Um, With the compassionate mind approach, what you would do when you're trying to balance that thought is to deliberately get into this particular pattern of being, bringing your warm, kind voice, bringing that strength and that wisdom of of that teacher or that coach, and then thinking about, so how else might I think about this event that's happened here or how I've been today? What, what would this part of me say about this? But it's understandable that as human beings, we, we have wiring to respond um, in this way to threat. And this isn't my fault that I might have experiences that have tuned me up in particular ways to make me even more susceptible, even more highly tuned to these things. So it's no wonder I responded in this way. So we really are bringing this this warmth, this kindness, this wisdom, this strength um, in in balancing our thoughts and we're writing those down. And then the other part of the exercise that we can do is is something that's very powerful that we use um, in our workshops and with our work is to get people just to read through what they've written. And people tend to read it through in a very kind of up in their head way that, well, it's understandable given our our human nature, given our evolution and so on. So we tend to kind of read it through like this. We then get people to read it again, but this time with this deep warmth, kindness, really slowing this down, a real heartfelt wish towards ourselves to really help ourselves and to read it again with this particular voice tone. And it really sinks in. It's like you can almost feel it sinking into your body when you do this. So it's a, it's a very powerful way of, of doing thought balancing. So the other thing that you mentioned was compassionate letter writing. Letter writing was something that um, it's, it's been used for a, an awfully long time, that, that knowing intuitively that writing things down really helps and there's uh, been some some lovely work by somebody called James Pennybaker who looked at how powerful just writing a letter that you don't even think too much about you just write to yourself about um, an issue that's happened um, that we know that doing that settles our threat system and helps us to feel safer but when we're writing a compassionate letter we we really are again getting back to embodying that that compassionate teacher or compassionate coach within ourselves and then writing to ourselves from that part. So we might say, dear and our name, and we write with real understanding. I've, I've noticed you've been really struggling lately with whatever's been happening. And you, you write the whole letter from this place 
from understanding our human brains, understanding our background that has gone into this difficulty. But again, the really crucial thing is the voice tone and the facial expression that you imagine is writing this letter. And then what you do at the end of this letter is then read it back to yourself. And again, you can do this experiment of reading it back just in a normal voice and then comparing it to this this warmth and deep care that you have for yourself and just noticing the difference because it really does feel like it's somebody else telling you these things. I imagine there may be tears oh, there during are. this exercise there in a good way. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an incredibly powerful and moving exercise. And definitely not a letter you want your critic writing. No, and, and that's an interesting thing, actually, because we're so wired to hear the voice tone that we can actually pick up where our critic might have crept in. And, and often, if we've got a strong self-critic, the critic does creep in and the letter gets a bit kind of finger waggy. You know, mm. you should this and you know this and you've learned this and but we're very very good at detecting that so it's worth just underlining those bits and changing those bits and we we know if we found our compassionate self because we'll feel it in our body that it allows you to to feel this this safeness this connection this feeling understood Michelle, do you have a couple of minutes to do just a short self-compassion guided exercise for our listeners Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. That would be wonderful. Yeah. I think I think every one of our listeners will be able to take something away from this today. Lovely, okay then. I'll try to make it short, but there are diff- different components to it that are quite important. So we'll go through those quickly, but it's even more powerful when it's when it's really slowed down. So we'll go through very briefly five components and and I call these the five stepping stones from threat to soothing. So we can work through these and they will start to change our body, which then changes the system that we're in and helps to change our thinking and our behaviour. So I'll take us briefly through these these five steps. The the first thing, we, we start with our posture. Um, So this is really important because we get feedback from our body. So the the posture that we need to move into is having our feet flat on the floor. So really becoming aware of the contact of the soles of our feet with the floor. And then imagining energy coming up through our legs. up our spine, imagining ourselves unfurling like a fern, all the way up to imagining your head or feeling your head looking ahead, but with your eyes closed or your eyes just focused on a point. Bringing your shoulders up, back and down, so you can feel your chest beginning to open up. So you're introducing a feeling of openness and confidence. Just move your body slightly back and forth to make sure that you're not feeling too open and vulnerable. If you do, then just move your body slightly back again until you feel yourself move into that place where you can feel the safeness come back again. So this will be an individual experience for each of us. 
So now just letting your body just begin to settle. Feeling your body slowing down, perhaps becoming a little heavier. Feeling an increase in stability and steadiness. Now bringing your attention to your breath. Beginning to slow down your in-breath. And slow down your out-breath. So on your next out-breath, in your mind, you might want to think, breath slowing down. And on your next out-breath, body slowing down. Allowing your breathing to slow, become smooth and gentle, just like a breeze, just gently blowing through the leaves of a tree, gentle and slow and smooth. And you'll begin to find your own soothing breathing rhythm. As you settle into this, just keeping this rhythm. And then becoming aware of your mind and your ability just to observe your breathing. Just as if you're looking down and watching yourself, allowing yourself to be just how you are, without judgment, just watching, watching with curiosity and interest. Then bring your warm, kind facial expression. Just imagine bringing a smile to yourself. Noticing how that feels in your body. Then bringing a warm, kind voice. So if you find yourself talking to yourself during this practice, hearing yourself talking with kindness and warmth, now imagine looking in the distance and seeing you coming round the corner. And just imagine greeting yourself 
with your warm, kind face and voice saying hello. That real sense of I'm pleased to see you. And just simply imagine just greeting whatever part of you comes around that corner. Imagine greeting that part and being with it, simply being with, with it with kindness and warmth. With your strength, with your wise understanding. So just simply being with it, with your kindness, noticing your heartfelt wish. It, it would find a way through any of the difficult times, that you will be with it, supporting it, encouraging it, helping it in whatever way you can. And just becoming aware of what it's like for this other part of you to have your compassionate mind with it. Now just imagine moving back into your compassionate self, feeling that strength in your body, feeling yourself opening up, your steadiness, your joy in being able to be like this. And when you're ready, just begin to bring your mind back into the room. Just becoming aware of the sounds, just allowing them in without judgment. Noticing your feet on the floor, your hands in your lap. And when you're ready in your own time, just gently open your eyes. And if you need to, just move, gently shake out, perhaps stand up or just enjoy being in this place. So thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. That was wonderful. I got to take part myself. Such a pleasure to talk to you today and learn more about your work in the UK. And I just want to remind everybody that they can pick up Michelle's book online. It's called The Compassionate Mind Approach to Postnatal Depression Using Compassion-Focused Therapy to Enhance Mood, Confidence and Bonding. I recommend every birth professional gets a copy of this book and reads it cover to cover and I think it's a great resource for uh, for parents too but thank you again so much it's just been a wonderful experience and I look forward to speaking to you again thank you Tracy I look forward to that too a wonderful experience for me too any excuse to talk about this yeah absolutely <laughs> we will talk again for sure yeah download the gentle birth app today for your free seven day trial from the app store or google play seven days for better sleep more confidence and less fear. Your positive birth begins here.